Amen. Well, thanks for being here this morning. Thanks for tuning in on streaming. Glad all of you are here. I feel like after Tom did a shout out to all the people that he knows around the world that I should start saying, well, I know somebody that lives and I know somebody, but I won't do that. Although I do have some sisters living in Tennessee that are tuning in right now. I have sister lives in Virginia that's tuning in. Anybody else want to give a shout out to somebody? So, hey, we're glad you're here today. Uh, this is, uh, even though we recognize these are unusual times, I really have great news for you from the Word of God today. And we understand that uh, in our teaching on Matthew, that there had been a um, questions that are being raised to Jesus. And this is just hours, just days before the most supreme sacrifice man has ever known, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself, giving his life for us. But there were those who were in opposition to him that were trying to ask him questions to try to trick him. And we see that uh, this is followed up even today. And the question that's being raised today in the passage is that of the resurrection. You know, there's no greater truth that we hold to that brings joy than that of the anticipation of the resurrection. In fact, uh, the people of uh, Thessalonica were uh, confused because somebody had suggested to them that they had missed out on the resurrection. And Paul addresses that in 1 Thessalonians. And I want to read these verses to you. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, meaning they were dead, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet and, uh, of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. And then he says these words, therefore, comfort one another with these words. You know, as a pastor, I've had the privilege of being with a number of people when they're just on the edge of death. And uh, those have been incredibly joyous times. And I think that if we would understand what we're transitioning from and to, we too would look forward to the time when we're going to be with the Lord. You know, what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace, all is peace forevermore on that bright and golden shore. What a day. What a day that will be. There are over a hundred passages that deal directly with this thought of the resurrection in the scriptures, both Old and New Testament. And it's interesting to observe that Jesus used the testimony of the resurrection in times of greatest distress amongst his people. When he was in the upper room discourse, talking to his disciples, the last major instruction that he was giving to them, he noticed that his disciples were distracted. And of course they were distracted. They had reason to be. Number one, Jesus was approaching death 
And that was confusing to them. They had not anticipated that, even though Jesus had spoken of that. And secondly, there was concern that if Jesus was going to be put to death, what was going to happen to them? And so the question of what should be our attitude in the face of death? And Jesus says these strange words in John 14, interrupts the flow of thought there, and then says these words, to those who were fearing death, let not your heart be troubled. Those are strange words to say in the face of death, aren't they? Don't be troubled by that. And then he goes on to say, why? In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I've gone to prepare a place for you. That where I am, there you may be also. I think we need to certainly live life as God intended for us to live. He said, I came that you might have life and you might have it even abundantly. But at the same time, I think, as we approach that age of death, and sometimes it can come unexpectedly, even as Tom said to us this morning regarding Gary Groves. But when that time comes, I think we should be preparing our hearts even now to say, don't weep for me. Don't you worry about me. It is well with my soul, better than I ever imagined. When I breathe my last here, I breathe my first there. I'm done with sin. I'm done with discouragement and defeat and fear. And I celebrate the presence of my Lord forever and ever. Amen. You guys are getting good. Right on. Excuse me. So, and so Jesus said that. I I also love what he said to Mary and uh, Martha when their brother Lazarus was dead. And he uh, said um, uh, to them, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you not understand who I am? And in the face of losing their brother, who had been dead now for several days, he encouraged them with the understanding that death doesn't win, that there is a great deliverance that is coming, and that's the resurrection. So the, the Bible clearly teaches that, and we can embrace that. I want us as a congregation to embrace that. Uh, listen, if I have the privilege of lying on death's bed, I may go unexpectedly. But if I have the privilege of lying on death's bed, please, no doom and gloom, okay? It, 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 save that for somebody else. But you come around me, you come with song and heart, you come with joy in your spirit, you come with celebration, because that's where my heart's going to be. What a day that'll be, huh? Amen. And you know, when I consider my own life, I anticipate that because more of my life is in the rearview mirror than it's through the windshield. I mean, just by the actuary tables, I'm getting close, maybe even today. So we see then that there's clear evidence of the resurrection, and the resurrection theme is given to us as a means of encouragement. John even speaks of that in John, or Jesus speaks of that in John chapter 5 when he talks about the resurrection. And he said, some will be resurrected unto life and abundance, and some will be resurrected unto judgment. Now that should be a concern to us, even as Revelation 20 speaks to us. So that settles the reality of the resurrection. But what I love then is that in the passage that we have today, there are representatives who are in opposition to the truth of the resurrection. And we have the privilege of seeing Jesus speak to them, and not only speak to them, but firmly establish 
the reality of the resurrection. So as we look at the passage here in Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 to 33, I, I want us to understand that there, uh, the way we can develop this passage, so you'll know where I'm at and how we're proceeding with that, I'm going to basically ask five key questions in regards to this passage. Here they are. First of all, who's asking the question? Secondly, why are they asking the question? Third, what is the question? Fourth, how does Jesus respond to the question? And fifth, what is the response of the people in the the response that Jesus gave? Now you know where we are. And let's go. Let's look at this. So let's look at the passage first of all. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, and we begin in verse 23. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died. Having no children left, his wife to, uh, he left his wife to his brother. So also the second and third, down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all married her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. This is the word of God for us, even now. So first of all, we have the a group identified that were asking the questions. Now, we've already had that uh, looked at. We see that the Pharisees ask questions. Even next week, we'll see that another group of questions are asked regarding the commandments. But right now... This is a group that is uh, asking in regards to Jesus and the resurrection. Now, these are people that didn't believe. So, first of all, answer the first question, who are these people? Who are the Sadducees? Now, there were several, as Pastor Aaron mentioned a couple of weeks ago, there are several groups of the Jewish people that were existing at that time, and each held to a little different position on different things in regards to the Scriptures. The Pharisees were adherence to the Scripture, and even added to that. And then we see the Sadducees were the uh, influential, um, well-educated, and wealthy. And they had uh, control over the uh, temple, and they had uh, control over the priests, and they were ones who were sympathetic to the Roman government, and they were in opposition to Jesus. Now, this is basically who they were. They only uh, accepted any teaching from the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And that was all they ever accepted. 
And they also did not believe in the resurrection, nor did they believe in angels. But they were in opposition to Jesus. This is who they were. Now you think about this, why were they in opposition to Jesus? And there's reason for that. Number one, they were beginning to lose their influence because the crowds were beginning to adhere to the teaching of Jesus, and they feared loss of their prestige in that process. They also, one of their means to make money was in the temple, the exchange of money, the sacrificial system where they would disapprove of this sacrificial animal that was brought, and then say, here's one that is acceptable, and you can buy this from us, those who had traveled from afar to make their sacrifices there at the temple. So they were money makers in the temple. And Jesus had come just earlier and cleared out the temple and ran out the money changers. And so now they also saw one of their primary means of, uh, quote, fundraising taken away from them. So they were opposed to Jesus because he was radically disturbing their life. This is who the Sadducees were. They were Jewish people. Uh, they were uh, a part of the influence of the time. It's interesting to see that uh, soon after the resurrection of Jesus and the early part of the church, the influence of the Sadducees was lost. And, and in fact, this is the only place in Scripture where there is a direct confrontation between Jesus and the Sadducees. It's almost as if he silenced them and there was no longer a rebuttal. Some people have said in order to remember who the Sadducees were, he said that they did not believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. Thanks for laughing. That is so sick. But it is a way to remember they they didn't believe in the resurrection, so it was Sadducee. All right, that's who they were. Now, it doesn't then answer the question, uh, why were they uh, raising the question about Jesus? What, what was their motive behind asking these questions, challenging Jesus? Now, if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 20, you're going to see that there was a coalition that was formed of different uh, Jewish people that had come together at this point, and they were in opposition to what uh, Jesus was saying even as they raise the question of the resurrection. Um, it referred to trickery. I want to get to the point here. Um, oh, verse. Um, she said, um, in the 20th chapter, and I'm sorry, I can't recall that right now, and I don't have it here in my notes because I have no notes. But uh, there was opposition that was raised, and they formed this coalition amongst each other, and they wanted to be in opposition. They were the Pharisees, they were the Sadducees, and they were also the uh, scribes. There were other groups there, the Herodians and the Essenes, but they were all in opposition, and they stood against. Now, here, here's the point. It's, it's, it's there in Luke 20, but I, I just can't find it right now. And so here's the thing that they were doing. They were coming together because they were opposed to Jesus because of his influence, because of his message, because of his declaration of deity, his uh, sonship of God, and all that he was declaring. And so what they were going to do, and they actually sent in spies, and the passage says that, that they sent in spies to try to 
catch him up in some question that would be asked of him so then they could take the failure to answer that and then or answer it inappropriately in their mind, and then take that to the governing forces, and then be able to have him crucified. Some of you have lost your focus on what I'm saying right now because you're trying to find that verse. And the first one that finds the verse, just raise your hand. 19, thank you. The chief priests and the scribes tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people. For they understood that the people uh, spoke, uh, that he spoke this parable against them right before that. So they watched him and sent spies, verse 20, who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule of the authority of the governor. This is just a means to try to catch him in uh, a question. So uh, who they were, the Sadducees, why they were asking the question was not because they were particularly interested in the answer. They were just trying to uh, get him, uh, the people opposed to him, and certainly a reason to turn him over to the governing authorities. Now we come to the third question, and that is, what question was being raised here in, a, in Matthew? And the question was, was about the resurrection. Now, what he quotes from here is, Deuteronomy chapter 25, and it is, in fact, given to us as to what the instruction was if a man and a woman were married, and then the uh, man died, but he had left no offspring, then the brother was to take this woman, there was instruction about how to go about doing that, and there was actually shame brought upon the brother if he didn't do that. And then they were to go, and for the very purpose, and it says very clearly the purpose of this, and it was to bring an offspring for their brother's name. Very important in terms of the Jewish community so that they could be continued on in that, that whole lineage thing, that they could trace that this is the father and the son of, son of, and son of, and so forth. And so they then raised this question about this. Now, so there's really two reasons why this law was in existence. Number one, it was for the genealogy of that particular person to continue, that man. But secondly, it was a means by which the woman could be cared for. There was no way that she could go out and make a living on her own. So this was a way that she could be cared for. Now, they raise this question, not because they're interested. It already says that they didn't believe in the resurrection. They raise it because it is a absurd question. And it's meant to be. It's meant to be asked to bring ridicule and judgment upon not only Jesus, but anyone else who would follow this thing. And so when you have it, now, I don't think there's any reason to believe that this was an actual case. I'll tell you one thing as I look at this, and it goes from one brother to the other, and I had seen that this woman had already, for whatever reason, had had bad luck with husbands. I think when it got down to about the sixth or seventh brother, I'd be leaving town, honestly. I'm thinking, this, this woman is tough on husbands, you know. But uh, so it's really, and, and you know, sometimes we go to absurdity or we go to uh, an, an nth expression uh, to expand this whole thought so that it looks ridiculous. And he's just saying, 
So then, then the question is, if she marries this one, he's dad, he marries this one. So she's married, been married to all seven of them. Whose husband will she be in heaven? Now, let me just make a comment about the style of questioning that is going on. Because I think that in our lives, we'll find people that we're concerned about. We're trying to share the gospel with them. We're trying to share the claims of Christ with them. And they will find some absurd piece of scripture and they will bring it to your light and they'll say, what in the world does this mean? They'll find uh, different thoughts about that. You know, the, some people dispute about the ending of, of Mark, for example, and they'll say, well, in this Bible, it has it and this one doesn't. So which one is true? And if this is not true, how can I believe any of this? There's good reason for that, but I mean, that's what really goes on. Listen, they are asking the question, one, to suggest to you that you're following God is absolutely silly. I mean, you, look at this. You mean to tell me your God endorses this? I just had this happen uh, probably less than a month ago where a brother came and asked me a question in regards to the Old Testament and the rules that were there, and I'm not going to repeat it, but uh, it spoke clearly, and I'm thinking, well, this is silly, and why is this question being raised? Now, listen carefully now. The reason people go to find these uh, things that really do have an answer for, but the reason they find those things that appear to be silly or absurd or ir- irrational is because it becomes then an excuse for them not to embrace the clarity of the gospel. That's their primary reason. They do not want to listen any further. And so as long as they can give this that you have, you feel embarrassed. Now, first of all, they don't want to embrace this simplicity of the gospel. But secondly, they want to make you look like a fool if you believe those things. And and so they're really not sincere seekers of truth, and we have to be very careful. Now, I do love the fact that Jesus does answer them. I want us to be careful then when people come up and they ask some really remote uh, question that seems because in this case, the one brother that was asking me this, this person had come to a position in the Old Testament where they are, are scripture, and this woman had taken a certain course of action, and then it said, as a result of that, her hand should be amputated. Well, when you look at that, it's, it's similar to what Jesus was saying. You know, if, you, if your eyes sin and pluck them out or cut your hand off, when we look at it in the context of those things, he's not literally saying that we ought to mutilate our bodies and that's the solution to sin. That's not the solution to sin. The sin is a heart issue. It has nothing to do with the eyes or the hands. Those may be the things that carry out those things. But in this case, it was talking about amputation there. And I researched it for this brother and said, well, this is the answer that I see here. And I gave him uh, two possible perspectives on that. Now, the point was, that the man that was asking him that question was not interested in anything other than that. And no matter what answer you give to them, they're going to ridicule that anyway. You're just making excuses. And this is silly because this is in your scripture and that's what you believe. So I want to help you understand that when people come up to you and they have the approach only to ridicule God or to ridicule the scriptures and they go to something that is remote or something that may have applied at a given period of time but no longer has application, their only purpose of that is that they don't have to embrace the gospel. Or they want to make you feel awkward about who your God is, period. 
All right? So this is really what the Sadducees were doing. They were there as spies to try to trick Jesus or to expose him or to make him look silly in some way to turn the people against him, and then they could renew their position of power. Well, I love the way that Jesus responds to them. And we can learn from this. How should we respond to those people that come up and ask us these questions? He attacks the issue for what it's for at the very beginning. Now, they didn't believe in the resurrection, so what did they care about whose husband or wife she would, or whose uh, uh, wife she would be? That was not their interest. It was just to try to expose. But Jesus, verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, you're mistaken. You know, what, what you're thinking here is not true. And the reason what you're thinking is not true is that twofold. One, you don't understand Scripture. And two, you don't understand the power of God. So he really addresses the core of the issue. And with people that are standing in opposition to God, trying to make us look silly or whatever, the real issue is they don't understand Scripture. And they do not understand the power of God. In particular, this was true for the Sadducees. Now, this is quite an indictment that was coming from Jesus to them because they prided themselves in knowing the word of God, as the Pharisees did as well. And so when this is raised and he said, this is your problem, you don't know. Now, it's one thing you can say, hey, look, you don't understand scripture. You don't believe in the power of God, but you got to support that in some way. And Jesus immediately supports that. He reverses the order here. Although the accusation is you don't understand scripture and the power of God, he first of all talks about the power of God. Notice how he answers the question here. But reg- <clears throat> Verse 30, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, this really troubles people when they look at that and they say, you mean I'm not going to be with Jimmy? You mean I'm not going to be with uh, Sarah? I'm not going to be with them in heaven? No, what he's talking about here is, now let's just follow through. When the earth was created and we are inhabiting the earth, God said the means by which the earth will be multiplied is through marriage and in marriage procreation. You'll have children. And that's the way the civilization will be perpetuated. It will keep going on and on and on. It's necessary. If we stop having children at any given point across the world, if we just stop doing that, eventually the human race is gone. But procreation is not necessary in heaven because the numbers that will be there are already established and there's no multiplication of that. It will be done. So in heaven, there is no need for the institution of marriage for the purpose of procreation. Now, the context is of, of the question that the, Pharisees, the, Pharisees, the Sadducees are asking is specifically that. It's about the context of procreation. If this brother doesn't bear, if this brother doesn't bear, then whose wife? So he's, they're asking the question in terms of bearing children. 
And Jesus is now saying, this is all that he's saying here, is that in heaven there will not be the bearing of children, so there will not be the necessity of the identification of a man and woman to bear children, because that process will not be necessary anymore. You'll be like, and then he says, like angels. Now, when that when we think about that, well, what are angels like? Well, they're they're not procreation. There's no there's no bearing of angelic beings. Their numbers are fixed. They're there, and they will be that way for all of eternity. So, so Jesus is saying, you don't understand the power of God here. God gave, and think, this is the most amazing thing. I'm always amazed at the process of uh, the conception, uh, birth the growth of that baby, the amazing thing. He has given us the power to create in that sense through marriage, husband and wife to bear children. But now what he's saying is, I'm shifting that power because it is no longer necessary. And the power that you have in heaven will be a relational thing in which is an eternal mixture like the angels who have as as their objective honoring God and serving God, that will be your new assignment when we get to heaven. Now, some of you are thinking out there and here and congregation, well, you mean it won't be special for me and my wife in heaven? Now, some of you are thinking, you mean I won't have to be with him anymore? (laughs) And you're rejoicing. (laughs) And some of you are thinking, oh, no, I just can't imagine life without that person. Well, you won't be without that person if they're alive in the Lord. I do believe that we'll be able to recognize each other. I think we'll be able to recognize each other as we were in terms of husband and wife. I think that'll be very special. I don't think we'll just ignore each other. We'll have that communion, but we will not be together as, quote, sexual beings. We'll be together as co-servants of God. And we'll rejoice in that thing. I've got some other thoughts along that line too. It seems to me that when we do get to heaven, because honestly, I would be uh, sad if I didn't see you in heaven as well. I mean, first of all, I'd be sad if you weren't there. But if I didn't have a special relationship with you in heaven, it seems to me that Jesus, when we look at this, he judged the uh, whole, the nation of Israel a generational judgment in the book of Hebrews because they were not obedient to God and he judged that generation. So it seems to me that when we get to heaven, hopefully we'll be uh, up there as IBCers. You know, we get to see each other, get to sing together, share together. I don't know that. But uh, otherwise we're going to have to be able to get acquainted with each other very quickly and personally in that process. So I think that there's a special relationship will not be as it is for the purpose of bearing children in that time. Now, he answered the question then, first of all, from the position of power. God has the ability to change anything he wants at any time he chooses in keeping with his purpose. But now he answers them in relationship to their ignorance of Scripture. But regarding the resurrection, verse 31, uh, but regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God. You pride yourself in knowing the scriptures, but have you not read this? I have to, you have to have an understanding 
that they only, as I mentioned earlier, they only believed in the Pentateuch, the only first five books of the Bible. That's all that they embraced. That's all they believed. And up to this point, there had been, by those who were trying to have an apologetic with the Sadducees, there had been no adequate answer given to them. In fact, some of the answers that I read seemed rather the stretching of Scripture and a little bizarre. So what Jesus does, he takes them to a central passage of Scripture that every Jewish person knew, every Jewish person loved, because it was the time of the deliverance of the Israelites from the Egyptians and the raising up of Moses to accomplish this. And when when God comes to Moses to call him there in the desert, there in the burning bush, third chapter of uh, Exodus, and calls him, he identifies himself. He said, this is who I am. And it's important because he's going to have to go down to Egypt and declare who is the God that he represents here. But he quotes this here for us in verse 32. And he says, have you not read what is spoken to you by God? This is not Moses. This is not one of the prophets. This is God himself who is speaking. I am the God of Abraham, and I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. Now, I've added that emphasis there because that's what he's saying. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, he, if he was not speaking to the fact that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were alive, he said, he could have said it like this. Now, now, listen, I was once the God of Abraham while he was living, but now he's gone. I was once the God of Jacob when he was living, but now he's gone. I'm not, and I was once the God of Isaac, when he was alive, but now he's gone. That's not the way, that's not the verb tense here at all. It's not what is really implied at all. What he is really saying is, when he came to Moses, he says, I am, as of this moment, the God of Abraham, who lives. I am, at this moment, the God of Jacob. I am the God of Isaac. He's declaring that he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so, I mean... This was refuting everything they thought. Right there, clearly, from the book of uh, Exodus, a book that they would have accepted, he silenced them because there was no rebuttal to that. The only way they could uh, refute that in any way was to deny that God had spoken there, to deny the whole calling of Moses, to deny the whole deliverance of the Israelites. He was saying that his credentials of this fact, that he is currently the God of those individuals. Now, I don't know what that does for you, but that brings great encouragement to me. Because when I die, I won't be here, but I'll be with my living God. I'll be there. He is the God of the living, not the dead. Now, there is no rebuttal that's given to us by the Sadducees here. He silenced them. He said, you don't believe in the power of God. You have no understanding of the word of God. Now, may I just back away here for just a minute? Those are two crucial aspects of our belief in God. This is why in the book of Matthew, over and over again, as the credentials of Jesus are being displayed, it is his power that is being defined. It is his power over demonic spirit. It is his power over death. It is power over sickness. This is his power. 
If we have an impotent God who has no power and no ability, then we're, uh, we're uh, of all people, most to be pitied. We have hope only here. But we, but we have a God who is sovereign God, even as Pastor Tom mentioned at the very beginning. He is all-powerful. And secondly, what we have here, and this is the way people will try to challenge us. Well, do you really believe in God? Do you really believe in God? No, I firmly believe in the power of God. And, and we, we ask this question, you know, if, well, what if I'm cremated? Will God be able to bring my resurrected body back? What, what if I'm buried and, and I've been dead for a long time and the worms have consumed me? Will he chase each one of those worms down and wherever they went? And what if I'm thrown out into the ocean, all my ashes? Can he gather those up? Those are silly questions that are only asked because you don't believe in the power of God. Listen, I am impressed with the miraculous aspect that I'm physically born and the whole process of that. It's nothing for him to draw you from wherever the court. Those are silly questions, all right? So he says, you don't understand the word, you don't understand the power. That's always the challenge. They're trying to separate you from who God is and what he can do to leave you alone so you're all on your own to figure out how life is going or they try to separate you from the Word of God. And this is why we must be feeding upon it. Well, let's get to the last thing here. And that is, what is their response? Look what happens. First of all, we hear no rebuttal from the Sadducees because they know that they had been defeated there. But when the crowds heard this, verse 33, they were astonished at his teaching. I wish that astonishment was the only thing that was required for eternal life because there are a number of times that they are declared astonished. But these same people that were astonished at the teaching of Jesus right now were the ones that cried out for his crucifixion two days later. See, it's not a matter of, wow, you really won that debate, Lord. But he won the debate for a reason, and that is to bring us to conviction about who he is and what his truth is in regards to life. Now, he refutes them well. So when you're confronting people uh, that uh, raise silly questions, then you have a twofold response to them. Well, don't you believe in the power of God? Don't you believe in the word of God? Because if you do, then this is what you should understand. Regardless of what the subject is, you can address it on these two levels, who God is and what he's able to do and what he said. You say, well, wait a minute. What if those people don't embrace that? What if they don't believe in the power of God? What if they don't believe in the word of God? It doesn't matter what they believe. There's no evidence that these Sadducees believed in the power of God or the word of God. What you say to people has nothing to do with what they believe. It has everything to do with what you believe in regards to the word of God. You don't need the endorsement of the insincere, radical person that is just simply trying to ridicule you. You can say, I, I was sharing on Wednesday morning a couple of weeks ago when I was working in ESCO and uh, at a place there. I worked uh, through the night, and there was only two of us that worked there. And one of the men that worked there, he was quite brilliant. And I had, because we had long jobs to do, I actually had permission to do some of my studies there as these long uh, computer jobs that were processing. And I was studying. This guy would sometimes come by and look and see what I was reading. And he came by and looked, and, and I was at actually the, the commentary that I had there was talking about uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when he read that, I was overdoing something. He read that because he was curious, and he just jumped back, jumped back. 
And I said, are you okay? He said, yeah, do you believe that? I said, well, let me see. I said, yeah, I do, don't you? No. You know, he said, and I've been observing you. You don't believe in um, absolute truth. He said, no, no, just the reverse. He said, you believe in absolute truth. And I said, and you don't? He said, no. I said, absolutely. I, I believe, listen, friends, I believe what the Bible says. I believe who Jesus Christ is. I believe who God my Father is. I believe who God the Holy Spirit is. I believe these things. And because you don't believe it and choose to ridicule me on that, alters me zero. So, amen? Let me just close with this illustration. I love this uh, thought. I, just, I read a um, couple of uh, stories or uh, life stories of missionaries while I was gone. Four different ones, uh, great powerful stories. But this one was um, Latte Moon. Anybody know who Latte Moon is? I know Melissa does, but Latte Moon. Anybody? I, no, that's a latte. You know, somehow I'm not surprised at that, Michelle. <laughs> but <laughs> she was an amazing woman, lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. She went to China as a single woman, stayed single all of her life. And, uh, and she went there because her sister was already there, and her sister invited her to come there, and so she did. And she got there, and uh, she, her heart was captured by God, and she wanted to go back. Her sister got very sick and had to go back home. She brought her sister home, but then went back out there. And she could see that the people were ripe for the gospel. She was so excited to share the claims of Christ that people were coming. She also saw that they were in need of medical help, that they were in need of food and, and the basics. And so she, uh, she then went back home and she talked to the Southern Baptist women, women's organization. She said, would you please, when it becomes right before Christmas, would you please take a, an offering up to assist in our mission here? That we'll be able to get doctors here. That we'll be able to build a hospital here. That we'll be able to care for these people, even in need of their food. And the, the women bought onto that right away, and they started doing that. And they're still that very ministry is still in existence today. In fact, I read that over $2 billion have been raised for missions because of this one woman who dared to challenge people. Now, that's not what my point is. This is who she was. She was a lover of the Chinese people. She was God's lover of those people. Well, it came when a famine hit the area in which she was in. She uh, refused to eat the food that was hers, and she began to give it out to the people. And when they finally came, she was very weak, to her, some of her co-workers, and they estimated that her weight was around 100 pounds at that time. I mean, uh, 50 pounds. She was just skin and bone. But to realize that what she was doing, she was starving herself because she was feeding those people around. And they said, we've got to get her to better medical condition. So they put her on a boat, and she was heading back to the United States. Ended up at a port in Japan. And it was there, and they sent a nurse along with her, a Christian nurse. And it was there that uh, she was getting weaker and weaker. And on her last dying moments, she was reciting the names of some of her Chinese Christian brothers and sisters that had died. And when she would recite their names, she was giving the expression that was true for the Chinese people of when you welcome someone, 
the hand clasp that came in that process. And so she would list a name, and then that greeting would be. And then she would list a name, and then that greeting would be there. And then finally, she just raised her hands and then died. Her nurse said what she was doing to the best of her ability. She said she was literally already heavenly-minded, greeting those that had gone before her. And the reason she mentioned no name at the end and only raised her hands, not in a welcome class, but in adoration, is that this nurse perceived she was in the presence of Jesus, loving Jesus. So listen, the resurrection is sure. It is absolute, based upon the testimony of Jesus. And one of these days, one of these days, we're going to embrace not only Jesus, but all of the redeemed of all ages. Can you imagine that? I had the privilege of leading a man to the Lord. and uh, Within 36 hours, he was gone. I asked him if he was ready to die. He said he didn't know. I shared the claims of Christ, and he said, I want that. And uh, the next day I visited him. This would be only hours before he died. He was still very alert. I said, are you ready to die? He said, I'm ready to die. You have peace? I have peace. I have Jesus in my heart. And I asked him, I said, would you do something for me? It looks like you're going to die before I do. He said, well, what could I do for you? I'm lying on death's bed. I said, well, there was a man up There's a man up there that used to go by the name of Doug Jones. That'd be my dad. I said, when you see him up there, would you tell him Mike said hi? I'll do it, he said. I'll do it. You think, well, man, what a silly thing. No, it's not silly. That's the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What a day that will be.